Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In honor of observing LGBTQ History Month, we'll be hearing from Ari Copeland, who is a fellow water nerd and also from the LGBTQ community. We're both part of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee within the American Water Works Association, which is where we first met. Ari has been a vocal advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the water industry for several years. He leads several initiatives within his company, Black & Veatch, and also within the national water community, educating folks about the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Currently, as the chair of Black & Veatch's Pride Employee Resource Group, he's working towards fostering a safe and inclusive work environment for LGBTQ professionals and allies. In our conversation, Ari talks about his experiences as a queer transgender man in the water industry. We also talk about his experiences of transitioning while at work and what his transition has meant in his profession and also in his diversity, equity and inclusion work. He shared the fears he's had to face as a result of bringing his authentic self to his family, friends, colleagues and employers. We discussed some of the nuances of how individuals from the LGBTQ community are faced with the unfair burden to quote-unquote reveal themselves by a dominant heteronormative society and how that's deeply problematic. I really believe that the lessons Ari shared must be heard by all, especially employers who are genuinely seeking to create safe and inclusive work environments for folks from the LGBTQ community. Of course, we have to talk about water, so we talk about Ari's full-time position within Black & Veatch as an operations specialist and what that entails. I could have continued talking to Ari for hours, but of course, I had to stop myself. I hope you really enjoy this conversation because it sheds a lot of light on the experiences that Ari has gone through within the water industry as a queer transgender person and what we can do to be better allies within the industry for people from the LGBTQ community. Hope you enjoy this conversation. So we'll start here. With the first question, which is, how did you develop your passion for the natural environment, and in this case, water? Yeah, like most people in this industry, I sort of semi-stumbled into it. It's kind of a pretty common theme in the water industry. A lot of us don't make it here by like, I don't know, intentional ways. So just to give you some background on me, my father was a chemical engineer, and he actually worked for an industrial client where he treated wastewater that came off of a, a place that made rubber and would discharge actually into the Naugatuck River. And Naugatuck is actually directly south of where I am sitting right now, because I'm actually in Connecticut right now. So he did environmental compliance, and like wastewater treatment and things like that. So I was exposed to that at an early age. I don't know how much impact it had. My father actually died when I was uh, four years old. And he actually died in an industrial accident at work. So it's... Oh, no. I'm yes. sorry. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. So it's pretty much been a part of my existence, the environmental realm in terms of like pollution control, valuing water. I don't know. I went to college and I actually majored in a more basic science route. Like I was a physics major for a while. And I kind of was like, oh, I really want to make sure I have a job by the end of this four years. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that people that have a physics degree aren't useful. I don't want people... To, yeah. I don't want hate mail. I love physics. I, if, 
But I was like, all right. So I th- I was like, maybe I should go more applications route. So I kind of stumbled into civil engineering and took the general civil engineering coursework, which is roads and buildings and water and waste. Right, yeah. <laughs> Transportation, or what I used to call counting the cars class, which is very important. <laughs> you know, because what you do, you stay on the corner and count cars. I'm sure they've automated that by now because I'm almost 40 yes. and old. <laughs> But I mean, I still people see have like stand in the corner with clickers, and they're they're trying to figure out like where they need to put like a light or a stop sign or I don't know. Mm. Very very important work. Yeah, I want to minimize it. It's very important. Saves lives. But I took a water and wastewater treatment class in the civil engineering department. Depending where you go to college, it's only like one or two classes. You don't really get a whole lot of exposure to it. So Mm -hmm. I decided, oh, I really like this. And my academic advisor at the time was like, well, Ari. If you really like this, you should probably consider getting a master's degree because you're not going to be able to do this kind of work unless you get more education. And that's just how it works. So yeah. that's what I ended up doing. So I ended up getting a master's degree at the University of Cincinnati. So I lived in Ohio for a little bit. So I wasn't terribly far away no. from you. Just, uh, no, not at all. <laughs> but just at a different time. This was like 2003 to 2005. So, Oh my yeah. gosh, I feel like our paths, because you worked in Tampa for a long time. Are you familiar with St. Pete? We've crossed or we've had, um, I guess, a similar trajectory in where we've stayed. We've both stayed in Tampa, St. Pete area. You lived in Providence, Rhode Island yep. as well. Right. Yep. <laughs> and now Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Right. It's just, there's something there. Yeah. I'm sure we've like crossed each other on the street or something. Yeah, there you go. It would have been funny if that happened. I lived in a couple other places like Colorado and Oh man, where else? Well, Missouri, which is where I technically live now. Mm. No, it's kind of crazy that St. Pete, I was like, Connecticut, Ohio, Florida, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Missouri. Well, Colorado was somewhere in the middle, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like a triangle <laughs> with a tail. That's what I tell people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't know, I may move to California eventually and just complete like living in almost every time zone. If I could pull off Hawaii, that's like an ultimate goal. So we'll see. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think living in California would give me anxiety or like FOMO because the Pacific time and it's three or four hours depending on where you are, like if you're on the East Coast. So like, I just feel like an entire day has gone if I was in California and yeah, where everything's been traded. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the stocks or work's been done. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're veering away from you to my fears and anxieties. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I deal a lot with fears and anxieties. So I definitely <laughs> I feel like it is part of my job. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So when you were taking the courses, what element of civil engineering really spoke to you or resonated with you? Yeah, so basically mostly the water and the wastewater treatment stuff. I kind of did some additional coursework in the chemical engineering department because a lot of the other like solid waste and like air pollution, those are typically in the chemical engineering track. So there's some chemical engineers that go the environmental route and they tend to go like the industrial or solid waste and air where civil and environmental engineering is always held on to like water and wastewater, pretty much. So I would say I'm ha- I do wastewater work 99% of the time when I'm at work. And basically, I don't really even function or work as a civil engineer anymore. I did for many years just doing like designing pump stations and pipelines and 
signing permit applications and all those really exciting things that's involved in designing and constructing a project. But now I do more operations related work. So a lot of times I'm helping start up or commission a water or wastewater treatment facility or infrastructure like a pump station, helping the people who actually operate it feel comfortable with what they have and troubleshoot issues and provide training to them and write instructions for them. So that's more of what I actually do now. So I don't even really... I kind of function like a weird engineering hybrid operator because, as you know, you don't really forget (laughs) the information you already have. So So when there's like a hydraulic issue, I'm just like, oh, this is when my engineering degree is actually useful. (laughs) Yeah. So... Anyways, but that's what I like. Wastewater treatment's a lot of fun. I do a lot of it. So wastewater treatment is a lot of fun. How did you find yourself in like the operator path? Is that something that you knew was available? Like, how did that happen? So I say in my first job out of grad school, I did work for the EPA for a little while while I was in grad school. But my first job outside of it was working for a smaller consulting firm called Boyle Engineering. And they got bought out by a larger firm. They don't exist anymore. But I worked a lot with operators at the water plants because a lot of the things that we did were compliance related. So I had to really interface a lot with those folks to understand like why they weren't in compliance. So I would be at the plants taking samples and like working with the operators to try to figure out like what's going on. So I was pretty much exposed to operations pretty early on in my career. And I just, I would go to so many plants and talk to so many people. And I just really enjoyed it. It's just, and you know, I wasn't just sitting behind a desk filling paper space, right? And not saying that that's bad. We need people to do that. But I felt like the time that I had in the field, I learned way more. Like, and I, it actually made me a better designer because I would go out there and see things that were designed by others that didn't really have a frame of reference in terms of operating. Yeah. And it, it would make the plant harder to operate or part of that plant inoperable. So, I was like, wow, this seems like there's a need for someone that really understands this or at least has this perspective and, and can go backwards and say, hey, what we did is kind of a bad idea. This is why. So I, I kind of did some of that kind of work for a while. And that's what I do now in the role I'm in right now at Black & Beach when we do actually get involved in the design side of a treatment facility. But I was exposed to them pretty early. I knew that operators operated the plants and that they were really the people that you know, a design project lasts like max five to seven years. And that includes the design, generally speaking. So that's a very short time frame in that whole life cycle of that project. So I would just look at it and say, oh, well, the operator's going to get stuck with whatever I do for 30 plus years or more. So that's why my interest kind of shifted a little bit from design to understanding, well, how do we really treat water and wastewater and how do these people do it and, and you know what i mean and just kind of learning more of that and then becoming licensed because water and wastewater treatment plant operators are licensed i'm a dual licensed operator in the state of florida and missouri and through another voluntary organization so i got to volunteer my time to operate plants to because you have to get hours of operating to get a license and then you have to pass a certification exam for each level. And each state has its nuance, but that's pretty much how it works everywhere. So I just really enjoyed it. I liked being outside. I liked talking to people that have a different intelligence than I do. I mean, I feel that we really undervalue people that have mechanical or electrical or they work with their hands. Mm -hmm. Those people are very bright and motivated and 
I grew up, and we know we'll get into it, but I mean, I grew up perceived as being female. So as you know, having opportunities to some of those more hands-on careers that are considered male careers, I was just fascinated by it because it's not something that was ever advertised to me. And it's something I, I would say I'm not really good at. <laughs> but I really was like, oh, this is interesting. And I never knew this existed because of what I was, basically. They weren't advertising it to me. So I don't know. I kind of just really enjoyed getting to know people that do that kind of work and have an appreciation for what they can do because it's just a different kind of intelligence. And it just really affirmed for me why when I talk about diversity and inclusion things, that it's deeper and bigger than demographics of people. We can't exclude these people. They're a very key component to how water and wastewater gets treated and public health. So I've always just tried to tell people, hey, it takes all kinds and look at these folks. They're they have different skill set, but yet our skill set and their skill set bring it all together. So that's kind of why like operations and engineering, I feel like I bring all that together. <laughs> yeah, I think it makes sense when you explain it that way. You've just got both perspectives. And I think that's what really helps make a more, I think, sound and a holistic design and operation in the long term. Yep. So last question about what it feels like to be an operator. What does your day-to-day activities look like for those who have have no idea what a water operator does? Sure. So I would say what I do is not typical of what a water operator does, but I can describe what a water operator does as a utility. So for many of them, they're making sure that the chemical, usually water treatments, a chemical physical removal kind of process. So you have like chem feed. So you have like disinfection and other chemicals that you feed into the treatment process to either settle solids out or make sure that the filter captures the solids and and they get filtered out. And there's other variations of those processes. But yeah, basically what that operator is doing is they're taking samples, they're using their eyes, their ears, their brains, their noses in some instances, walking around the plant, making sure that all equipment is operating correctly, making sure that the water that's coming in, the source water, because sometimes depending on the source water, it can have seasonal changes which affect your ability to treat the water. They're really the eyes and ears on, I hate the terminology boots on the ground, but they're really the people that are at the plant knowing what each process does and knowing what the treatment goals are or what the maximum contaminant levels are for what they have to meet in order to make sure that drinking water is safe. And they're doing whatever they possibly can to make sure that that happens. And then, and of course, supplying enough water to make sure people have access in case you have a fire. So but really day-to-day, it's just somebody that understands how water treatment works, makes process control adjustments to make sure that the water remains safe for people to drink and shower in. And that's it. I mean, they're using a variety of tools to do that. Some of them are using computers, SCADA systems, which is just automated way of monitoring or controlling equipment. But it's just a tool. It doesn't replace the operator that has to use their brain to make decisions on to adjust dosages of chemicals and things like that. And they're documenting things and creating monthly reports they have to submit to their state health department. And what the operator does sometimes varies depending on the utility. Some operators do maintenance too. If it's a smaller treatment facility or smaller utility, Lots of the utilities I work with are big and they have they have maintenance people that do that. So it just really depends. But that's more or less their job role. Mine, I just support a lot of those people through our engineering design projects. So a lot of times when I'm on site, it means we constructed a new facility or a rehabbed a facility and maybe the treatment technology there is different. 
than what they had before. So I try to help them get up to speed to understand like, this is how this works and we can't operate the plant the way it used to be because sometimes utility people get fixated on that. So their jobs are just very routine and regimented. Whenever you kind of take them out of that, some individuals struggle with that, some don't at all. So it just really depends on the utility. So I provide as much services as they would like or assistance they would like. A lot of times I'm just really trying to help them feel comfortable with what they have, if that makes sense. So they can meet, Mm because at the end of the day, they ultimately are responsible to the health department and their customers to keeping the water safe and drinkable and cost-effective. So that's pretty much it. But I do lots of other things that are operations-focused, like, you know, I benchmark plants to see if they're being operated efficiently, or I'll do staffing assessments to make sure the plants have enough people to function, or they have a process upset, I'll help try to troubleshoot the process upset. Or my job is very random. It just really depends yeah. what Black & Veatch sells. So Yeah, yep. interesting. Yep. And Black & Veatch is your current employer. Yeah, Black & Veatch is a global engineering, construction, and design firm that's located in Kansas City, Missouri area. Say that 10 times. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) You guys should have a competition when you're having your next, I don't know, annual meets or something of that sort. Right. (laughs) So whoever can see it's the fastest. (laughs) So let's talk about a little bit what you touched on in terms of your work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's one of the things that you're actively involved in through your employer, but also at the national level, it's called the American Waterworks Association. And we have a diversity and membership inclusion committee, which is how we met. Yep. What led you to join that group? So that committee is tied to the executive committee. So it's by appointment only. So I do apply. And what they do is they select volunteers with diverse volunteer experience to be a part of that committee. And some of it probably does have to do with demographics of those people and locations and things like that. But overall, the message that's always been communicated to me is that they try to find people with very diverse volunteer experiences because... And it makes sense because if you have a diverse volunteer experience, you have kind of a bigger understanding of how the association works and maybe some of where we're not as welcoming or or we have deficiencies or where we can make improvements, right? Yeah. So I wanted to be a part of the committee because I also used to work for the association and I have my own experiences with that as well. I actually went to work for them just before I actually came out and publicly transitioned. And I'm a trans guy, so I transitioned at Black Beach the first time I worked there and then in Tampa. And then I moved to Denver probably like seven months after that or so. So it wasn't a large period of time. So the association did have to interface with me on some of the nuances of that, which was fine. The executive director is a very awoke individual. So it worked out pretty well. So I joined because I wanted to make a difference. I want the water industry to be an accepting industry. I've just watched a lot of people in the LGBTQIA space plus community as well as other communities leave the industry um, largely because of things that they've experienced. And I just wanted to really, and you know, it's not all negative, but you know, that's the overarching reason is I just want those people to feel welcome. And I also want allies to feel effective and be a part of that change, right? Because that's the only way it's going to change. Most people in the organization are not like me at all. Most Mm -hmm. people in general are not like me. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll just be honest. Most people, for better or worse, are not like me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's really why I joined. I felt that out of all the volunteer experiences I could do right now, that that would be the most meaningful. So, yeah. And so, how did you get into diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Is it because you found yourself having to educate people about your identity as a trans man and queer in the water space? Or if there's another reason? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of reasons. I would say what you mentioned first is probably the primary reason because it's my experience. So it's easy for me to relate to. Yeah. Yeah, I started transitioning in 2009, but I didn't come out to my employer until 2011, which was very interesting. It was a very interesting social experiment to see if who would say anything and no one really did. (laughs) And I'm just like, okay, whatever. Uh, and that's fine. You're uncomfortable. No worries. I'm not putting those people down. They're actually amazing people. Yeah, they just don't know how to handle. Right. They don't know how to see you as a right as this quote unquote new person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So those people, they weren't bad. They just didn't know what to do. Yeah. They were just like, oh, you know, Ari. And I got them to call me Ari before I ever went into. I said, hey, I like this nickname. Just call me this nickname. I was like very fly about it. So. I was like, and they were calling me Ari for like two whole years before I ever came out at work. And I found it very entertaining to me. And maybe I shouldn't have, but I felt like, you know, I don't really owe anybody an explanation. And that's kind of just where I was at my life. I'm like, you know what? I have too much to deal with right now. I'm just going to do me. No one seems to care. I think I'm just going to roll with that. Yeah. If my voice is four octaves deeper, no one seems to care. So (laughs) it's special, but it's all right. It's kind of a comical situation, but maybe in hindsight, like back then it probably wasn't. It wasn't. Now it is. It was was awkward. (laughs) It was awkward. That's how I would describe it. But that experience of transitioning and kind of living two lives in a way, even though I really wasn't, I just wasn't really talking about it. It just made me appreciate people that had to do that. And I think I may have even told you this in the past, but transition, what it really taught me was that how people treat you is based on how they perceive you. So the reality is I was assigned female at birth and then I was perceived as female for a long time. Then I started transitioning. Then I had a period of people didn't know what the heck I was. And I experienced that and that existence is very difficult. People are not kind to people where they do not fit into any kind of Binary. Yeah. yeah. Anytime anyone has to think about what you are, add stress to their lives. And yes. and then they see it and then that's what you get. And or you're invisible, or they just completely negate it. Like they don't even want to know anything about you because you're just so off the realm of normal. And that's what I felt. And I still feel that way sometimes. But then as my current state, I feel like now I'm invisible. No one really thinks anything about my existence, right? Because I'm just like the norm of, or at least on the surface, I'm the norm of the demographic that's in the water industry. And then that has its downsides in a lot of ways because people will say things because of what I look like that are unawoke or, or really what they think. They'll say, oh, you know, like if it was easy, we'd have like a woman do it. Thinking that I'm like in alignment with that thinking because of what I look like. Right. Yeah. Very easy. They're like, oh, you're just a buddy, a bro. You get it. You know, my wife's a pain. You're one of the boys. Right. Yeah. So I can complain about my wife, even though she's a saint and like does everything for me. You get it. Right. You know what I mean? That's just kind of like, I feel like that's like what I've gotten recently because of what I look like. Stuck in that. (laughs) Right. 
and even if they know what I am, I find it's interesting that people, if they didn't know me before, yeah, they can't flip their brain in that context. They forget. It's very interesting. I'm fascinated by it all the time. Yeah, I say, hey, you know who you're talking to, right? Like, <laughs> like they're I, like, oh yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I can just make little like humorous jabs at them because that's how men communicate, yeah. and I still get respect. So I don't know. I consider it a success, but I largely advocate for people for one because I think it's important for every. Not that I want it to be like an everybody message, but LGBTQI people deserve to be who they are in the water industry, and they shouldn't have to be fearful. And they shouldn't have to feel like they have to cover and or feel like they have to leave to be who they are. So, and I saw a lot of that. A lot of the people that are queer in the industry are very closeted about it. Even if it's common knowledge, they really go out of their way not to have it be on the forefront or have it be on the surface, I guess. I don't know how else to say that. So like, for example, I know lots of people who, you know, if they have a company party, they won't bring their significant other because... It's different, right? Nobody knows, yeah. Right? Or they know, but it's still like that uncomfortable, like, don't ask, don't tell kind of mentality we're in. So, yeah, you still have to like maintain like the heterosexual culture of the organization, right? Which is dominant, yeah, say. right. And, and they just don't want to be different or stick out. And I totally get it. It's hard. I mean, I've been there, it's, it's hard. And there were times where I felt ashamed, and there's times I felt uncomfortable and uneasy, but I just had a breaking point in my brain where I just really no longer care. But some people can't do that. And unless there's a welcoming environment for that. For me, I just created one. That was a better solution for me. But for Black and Peach, I've been a part of them for 13 years collectively. I came back in 2013. And I saw a lot of things where I was just like, we really have some work to do. Just like every engineering firm and every water industry focus, even utilities. We all can grow and be better. Let's be honest. Me too. You too. It's an evolution of our understanding. But I saw a lot of things where I was like, we really could be doing better in terms of celebrating differences. And what I've come to really understand is that there's lots of factors in why people aren't good at that. For one, we're not taught to do it very well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And two, depending on where you are in the country, there's cultural norms. So like in the Midwest, it's less individual-centric, right? So they struggle a lot with that. Celebrating differences is definitely something that I find in Midwest culture is not very prominent. They're uncomfortable by it. And my company is based there. So there's a little bit more of a challenge there, I feel. And, you know, it's not as diverse as we could like it in terms of population of people we hire. So I started seeing a lot of this stuff and I said, well, you know, I don't really want my company to fall behind and maybe we are behind in some ways or not. It really depends what you're measuring against, right? I just felt like, oh, we can do more. So that's why I got involved in our employee resource group. We actually started the Pride ERG after the Women's Network started, which was like five years ago. And we really started just doing like programming and things to get people to understand our community and understand some of the ways we struggle and how things that they were doing unintentionally or we're contributing to that and trying to make allies and people more awoke in ways that they can do but they're very simple to be more inclusive like just using gender inclusive language and some people just really didn't understand when they were using binary language or when they were using husband and wife or when they were using craftsmen or you know what i'm getting at like all yeah. these male-centric words or these binary words that they're really excluding like potentially 10 percent or less or more of the company, potentially. 
So it just took a lot of work to try to get people to understand that. And what I find is that a lot of people are willing to say that they're supportive, but a lot of people either don't know what to do to be an ally, really. They really struggle with that part of it because they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. So I've really had to say, hey, you're not, it's not perfect. I've hurt people's feelings. I've misgendered people, not on purpose. But the difference is, is when you hurt somebody or you make a mistake, it's taking accountability for it and working towards being better. And it comes down to, I feel, to get effective allyship, you really have to get people to understand that being and having good intent isn't enough. That's like what we hope you have in general. <laughs> like Good intent is very important. But if it doesn't equate to the, a good impact or the impact that you want, then it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You can have lots of really good intent and hurt a lot of people. And I've done it. The difference is, is you have to take accountability for it and improve. Right. <laughs> so, so that's, we've done a lot of that. Right. With DI, we're asking people to, we're asking them to behave in ways that they haven't been raised. Like we're asking them to change ways in which they've been raised. And we're asking them to undo and unlearn some of those harmful behaviors and languages and practices that have been exclusionary. And then I think this is just hard overall for a lot of people is to get feedback on when they're doing something that's hurtful and kind of understanding what that feedback is in terms of like how to process it and then change behavior from it. Right. Often it's received as blaming someone for something or just rejecting it because you're calling out an action that they're most of the times not aware of. And like you said, they're of good intention, but it's an uncomfortable place to be. Yep. (laughs) Very uncomfortable. Right. And I've been there many times too. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And I get that. And if you're not used to being uncomfortable, see, I feel like you and I, it's just, we accept it as our reality. If you accept being uncomfortable as your reality, then you're not going to become defensive. You're not going to become, you're not going to shut down. Right. Because that's usually what I get. I usually get people that shut down. They get upset, right? Yeah. And they're not really actively, they're not listening to what you have to say. They're just taking it personal yeah. and, and that's hard. I get defensive. That's another thing I've noticed. And then yeah. three, the other thing is that I notice is people say, oh, well, at least I'm doing this or, oh, this other group doesn't even get any support. And I'm just like, okay, well, that's not really the right way of going about this. Like, that's not going to change the behavior that I'm seeing in you. So I'm aware that there's other underrepresented groups that don't get as much attention as mine does. The reason mine gets any attention is because people like me drive it. It's not like you're doing it. It becomes this conversation where I have to make a decision about how far I'm going to push it, right? Right. And say, hey, this isn't personal. And and I usually use myself, like I'll throw myself under the bus. And I'll say, hey, I have something I want to share with you. I grew up in a semi, I would say racist place. I was taught that people darker than me were not as good as me. I learned that. And I'm still unlearning racism because there were things that I were taught to do that I still do today. And one of them is lock the car door. Every time that my mom, I mean, she'd said this to me. And I know my mother does not hate people that are darker. It was taught to her. You know what I'm saying? It's just like that thing. It's like, but I'm awoke enough to realize when I do it to say, oh, no, Ari, not today. We're on learning the fact that you learned, you know, systematic racism today. We're going to take ownership of that. 
<laughs> right now. You know what I mean? Like, right. but I'm aware of it and I'm not ashamed of it. I learned it. Right. So now I, now I can take that, unpack it and unlearn it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I ask myself, like, where does that willingness to, to take that feedback come from? And I think it's, for me, at least it's based on my experiences of being marginalized yep. or discriminated against and wanting something bigger and better for all of us. Right. Right. And so I'm like, all right, I just have to like fight every single like urge to like come back with some excuses or some like qualifications of why I said what I did or why I did what I did. And and I just have to remind myself like I'm not gonna help make the change I wanna see if I'm gonna be part of that perpetuating cycle of common reactions. That's correct. Right? Yeah, that's correct. And, and I get people, you know, after you've been asked something a thousand times, if you heard the most that unawoke comment like 600 times, how easy it is to just say, you know, you need to grow up. You need to get over it. Yeah. I was just joking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, it's just like, I just say, you know what? You got to take ownership of what you're doing. I'm taking ownership of what I'm doing. And, and a lot of times what I do is I use a lot of like I statements. I don't know if you... Yeah. Yeah. I find that it's very effective because it really puts people is from their point of view. So like when I say, you know, when people joke about like affirmative action or just, or they say unawoke things about stuff like that and why it exists. I say, you know, all right, well, I'm going to put it in the perspective that you're going to understand. And I'll say, here's a couple I statements for you. Here's one. I think this is applicable for you. I can apply to any job on any job board or company and not have to even bother to look if they have an anti-discrimination policy and see if it even includes me. Mm-hmm. And it starts clicking. Like you go down the list and it just starts clicking with these people. And I'm like, see, see, you're getting it. This isn't even on your purview. Yeah. What's the deal? <laughs> you know, are we, <laughs> we going to become more woke and actually understand when we say these things, what they do to people who actually do have to look at this and why these things do exist? Because right. I don't want to have affirmative action exist. I want people just to like look at people and not be racist bigots, right? But right. sorry, history has proven us that those people exist and make decisions about hiring people. So... Right. I don't want to tell you. You know what I mean? It's like, what is your solution to this problem? Because, right. <laughs> but it's interesting. I can see that their mind is actively working because I pushed it into their world instead of trying yes. to create like sympathy, which does really nothing. Where you say, oh, look at these poor people. They haven't been considered for this job because of the color of their skin or like their trans status or whatever. That works with some people. But ultimately, putting it in their context always works better, I feel. And then they say, you know, Ari, even if they don't agree at the end of it, they're like, I get your point of view. Like, I get it. I actually understand it. And it makes more sense to me. So anyways. That just makes me think about the conversations that you're having. They're probably mostly with white men, because that's what most of our industry is. Yeah, yeah. But you can also tell us about the other conversations that you have with non-older white men. <laughs> but I guess like what I'm trying to go at here is the water industry is mostly older white men. Generally. It's not a secret. Go to a conference, you'll see it. Yep. Not a big deal. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But when you're having conversations with that particular demographic about DEI, how is that received? And... How do you have conversations around like 
power and privilege within that demographic. Yeah, it's tough. And it's not just them, it's cisgender white women too. Yeah. Yeah, because I do a lot with HR and that's generally that demographic. So I have to explain it to them to a degree because I kind of feel like a lot of corporations don't truly understand that DNI really is rooted in social justice. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, you really, if you want to do DNI correctly, you really have to understand social justice and you have to understand why we're doing it and why that's applicable here. So I spend a lot of time explaining things like that to HR and to the demographic you just stated, because like you said, it's not on their purview. But when I talk about privilege, I really talk about privilege is not something you necessarily ask for. I get male privilege. I did not ask for it. It's not like a goal of mine when I transition to say, oh, now I'm going to be more powerful than white women finally. You know what I mean? Like, or, or everybody <laughs> else. I'm like, oh, I'm going to take the power away from the minorities. That, that was not my goal in transition at all. Yeah. But the people ask me stuff like that. They're like, oh, did you change so you, you didn't have to like be looked down upon as a woman? And I said, no, but I'm glad you realize it exists. That's a step in the right direction. Yeah, okay. I mean, you're aware, <laughs> but that's not why this happened at all. Yeah. So when I talk to men, I try to say, hey, I understand your perspective. Like, I understand it's not your purview. It wouldn't be on mine either if I wasn't born in the circumstances I was in. I get that. I understand you don't ask for privilege, but at the end of the day, you do have it. There's certain scenarios you can use to display that. And I think I use, you know, the I statements are pretty effective with that. And I just say, hey, you know, instead of calling it a privilege for me, I look at it because I'm a privileged person in the trans community for sure. I'm like on top for sure. Like if you have to pick a trans existence, this is the one I would pick. So I say, hey, you know, I look at it when I got male privilege, you know, and I really struggled with it. And I kind of was like, oh man, I feel guilty. I have this now. I said, I kind of just started to stop and say, you know what? Now I have a voice and now I have the power to change it and make it better for somebody else and elevate a voice that doesn't get heard very often. And that's how I deal with having privilege just given to me and not really have it be questioned and stuff. I just say, all right, my goal is to elevate women's voices, people of color, biopic voices, trans voices, queer voices. Even people with job skill sets that are not common in Black and Beach, veterans, name the demographic. It doesn't matter. People with disabilities. Exactly. Invisible, invisible. Exactly. I mean, there's great I statements. You can use that. I mean, I use the I statement all the time. I can park my car and not have to be judged because of it. Yeah. That's one that hits close to home. Or we have accessibility issues with some areas of, of some of our buildings because we're not thinking that way, right? I say, hey, you can step on this stage very easily and not need a ramp or assistance, right? If you were on crutches, someone would have to actually help you up here. It's a fact. So (laughs) when people start looking at it from that realm, they're like, oh, Ari, you're right. Like, I don't have to worry about that. No one's judging me for that. Like, so maybe I should start trying to advocate for those people and make it equitable, right? And that's why I tell them, I was like, if you really are a caring person and really want the best for a corporation or the best for your entity, wherever you work, or just even the best of an industry, right? you're really looking towards the people who have the limited access or the limited voice, right? You're not really focused on the majority because generally speaking, they have what they need, which is why they're the majority anyways. So that's really where the focus should be. And you'll start seeing the demographics of people around you change. And you'll start seeing like other people, and in my opinion, be more caring and loving towards each other. I personally have experienced that, I feel. And I want to work in a place like that. But then everyone's treated equitably and that's not equal. 
people always get that confused. It's just equitable. We've helped people who had the least amount of access to obtain what I have to get here. So when I frame it that way, I find a lot of white men are, because for one, I'm not attacking them. I'm not focused on the fact that they've created the problem somehow, right? And I've said, hey, listen, I get it. You have a lot of buddies that look like you. That's great. But if you want this company to succeed and thrive, evidence and research and data is suggesting that if you care about this company, you got to start hiring people that are different than you. And that doesn't necessarily mean hire a trans queer person like me necessarily, but it means different in all aspects of that. Right. Yeah. So it becomes a less defensive conversation. I can't say everybody isn't defensive or uncomfortable, but when I talk to them, I say, Hey, do you feel uncomfortable? Do you feel anxiety? Are you feeling a little stressed out right now? Well, that's on you. And it looks like you just have a lot of work that you need to do to get yourself in a place where you can accept what I'm saying to you and really think about it. And I think when you phrase it that way, it's like, and I say, Hey, I can help you if you need it, but you got to do the work. Like you got to do the research and the understanding and, and I'm a soundboard to you, but I feel that you have the capacity to really be an ally. If you really just sat down and think about a lot of things and why you do them. Cause I had to do that. I didn't have a choice. It's not optional, but that's my success. So. And that's great. I'm glad that you are having these types of conversations because they just need to be had for one. And that's where a lot of the power is. And if we can bring some sort of realization of how they can use their power to create a more representative workforce, right. just like what you're trying to do, I think that's just a win-win for everyone, right. essentially. Exactly. So there's something that you mentioned about people just don't know how to be an ally. In your DEI work, how do you try to help people realize that? Like what tools or like, what do you tell them? So we just joined the um, LGBTQIA Mid-America Chamber of Commerce as a company. Mm. And I had a really fascinating conversation with Susan Wheeler. She's the executive director of it. And I've gone to their events for years and I, I love them. I think what they do is great. It's becoming more and more even trans-friendly. Historically, it's been more of a gay-white organization. So they've been really working hard to get better representation, um, for sure. But I was I was talking to her about it, and she said, Ari, you just got to find those rock star allies to communicate to other allies how to do this. Because sometimes I feel like it's got to come from like a peer or, or from like someone who's already gone through their struggle, right? It goes back to like relating, right? People necessarily don't relate to me from a trans experience, but I'm able to get them to through other stories. But she's like, what we're going to do is we're going to have like a, we're actually having our first DNI week celebrating it as a company in October. Cause I think that week of October 5th is like diversity and inclusion week in the UK, if I believe. I think that's correct. So we're going to have a whole week where we celebrate DNI at Black and Beach and what that means. And we're going to pull together like a panel discussion for a, a bunch of allies that work at other companies to try to empower allies. You know what I mean? Have an ally to ally conversation versus having it be a community member and taxing me to do it. <laughs> I think that's actually really a good way of showing, hey, this is a way where you can talk to other allies, but not have to come to Ari for everything or whoever you do, the other trans person in the organization, yeah. <laughs> all four of us, or maybe five. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? So I think trying to get that collaboration and finding those allies that already know how to do it 
and teaching other allies is good because I what I say is if you're an ally, it's a verb. It's not really a noun. You have to do yeah. something in order to be an ally. You can't just be like, oh, I love gay people. Ari, right, they're the best, and that be it. I mean, you got to advocate, stand up, yeah. do difficult things. I think a lot of what prevents people from being allies is one, being gay by association. I think that's a big one. Mm. And then especially in a male-dominated field, that's going to rule everything because men do not want to be, if they're straight, or even if they're closeted, do not want to be associated to gay people. It's just unfortunate, but it's true. And then some of that's toxic masculinity and the other things that unfortunately exist. But the second thing I think which is more of an obstacle in general, is that most people are just nervous about making a mistake or hurting somebody. And what I tell people is, is that you are going to make mistakes. <laughs> I make mistakes. I have completely misgendered people by accident because I made an assumption. And we all do it. Everybody, including me. Just because I'm trans doesn't mean that I'm perfect and I address everyone the way they want to. I'll forget because I'm binary and I've had to learn, right? So what I tell them is, you're going to make mistakes. But the difference is, is you got to be comfortable with potentially or maybe hurting someone's feelings and taking accountability for that. It's no different than growing in any other way of your life. Mm -hmm. So I think trying to find allies that kind of like say, hey, you know, this is a situation where I really tried to be inclusive and holy crap, it blew up in my face. This is how I actually came out of it as a better person. And now I'm a better ally because of it. And I'm sharing this lesson learned for you so you don't make the same mistake kind of thing. I think is powerful. So that's kind of the way we're going to go about it, I think, in the future. But previously, we've just provided them like resources. Like we did a whole virtual pride celebration within Black and Beach, which was a lot of fun. And we made this whole like Excel spreadsheet of how you could celebrate pride with resources. So we like highlighted podcasts and Netflix series and like books and things that people could do on their own since we're not coming together or with their family or whatever that looked like. And it was like a whole resource guide that people could just take. They could watch movies for the rest of the year if they wanted to. There was so, so much oh, stuff. Dang. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and every experience. I mean, it was intersectional. So we had, like, mm -hmm. for example, the Netflix series special, which is about a gay man with cerebral palsy in his experience in life. And then we had, like, Pose, which is an amazing show. Why I love Pose is because it's based on historic fact. It's directed and created by a trans woman named Janet Mock, who I don't know mm -hmm. if you know who Janet Mock is. I've actually met Janet Mock, and I've driven her to the airport. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, she's famous. Uh, she wrote several books. She's from Hawaii, and she transitioned. She's a male-to-female and she's a commentator, I think, for MSNBC. And she's amazing. I mean, she's brought the queer, trans, person of color experience really to the mainstream. And it's extremely accurate. It's extremely historically accurate. It Basically, the whole show revolves around drag culture, the ball culture, which is very much embedded in the trans people of color community. So it talks about that. And of course, it takes place during the period of the AIDS epidemic. So and how it impacts that community a little bit more than the average. So really, really powerful stuff. I really have a lot of respect for Janet. She does really amazing work. And I don't really feel she gets the credit she deserves. So tremendous. I will check it out this weekend then. Because yeah. I've seen it like show up on my Netflix reel. Right. And I've heard people talk about it, but haven't gotten to it yeah. just as yet. Yeah, it's a little slow in the beginning. The second season gets really serious because that's where, I mean, I don't know how much you know about the AIDS crisis and where you were when, and you probably weren't even. I was just born around that yeah. time. Right. But I've watched a lot of movies and documentaries about the AIDS epidemic in the US, especially. It was 
Horrible. Yeah. Like, I mean, horrible in terms of like, how the government managed that Correct. situation. Right. And how, like, especially the queer and trans community were just marginalized from it, like, just pariahed. Yeah, exactly. No one cared because it was killing a demographic of people that no one cared about. And the thing is, is I think it's the second season because Netflix is behind one. The opening season shows the two lead characters, Billy. Porter's character and, and the other person. I always I'm bad with names, so it's like she and him Me go too. to this yeah go to this island where a lot of people didn't know that existed. Like my sister didn't know it existed. I did because I know about the AIDS academic. It was horrible. But they used to bury people in this island outside of New York in boxes. It would be like unknown man because people would abandon their families after they got AIDS yeah. and they would just die in the oh hospital. It used to be a tuberculosis ward. They like demoed it just so they could have big mass graves really horrible but i love that janet understands that i love that she does it in a way that is really impactful and she just has really good trans actors the acting in poses is amazing it's great yeah it shows that we can do it and that we should yeah. be taken seriously because i don't feel people do and they would rather cast a cisgender white person to play one of us i don't think that's right so yeah there was this one show i can't it was on Amazon Prime, I think. It was the older white man who's playing a drag character. Oh, okay. And he won an award for it, too. Yep. Ah, uh, gosh. It's a really popular show, but that show got a lot of criticism because he's a straight white man right. playing a trans person yep. in the show. Yeah. I think Pose will help change that. I think it just shows that. And Laverne Cox has changed that a lot too. But I think it'll just show, mm -hmm. hey, if you look for us, we exist and we can act just as well as, I can't remember who was going to take on another role. I think it was Holly Berry was considering doing yes. a trans role. And I was just like, honey. Yeah, no. No, that's like, this is what I tell people. Like, and people get it after I explain it this way. It's like me saying that Scarlett Johansson could play Harriet Tubman. Yeah. I, I tell people that. I'm like, why is that not okay? Oh, everyone's upset now. I'm like, well... But that's different. Like, right. And I'm just like, it's not different. It's not different. Yeah. You need to get over yourself. Same, same. Right. Yeah. So anyways. <laughs> Better and, yeah, I will definitely check it out then. I wanted to go into the part of our conversation where if you can provide us with advice based on your experiences of how people who are in your situation or like who are transitioning or who have transitioned in the water industry, what can they do to make it smooth as possible? And I know like there's like a big caveat to it smooth as possible right. because like you mentioned, you didn't feel like you needed to explain it, but then the system required you to do that. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Which is not fair. Like nobody needs to know this. Like this is your personal life. It's what makes you happy. Like we ain't going around people asking people to like declare that they're right. men or women. Right. Or a lot of times I just felt people had a functioning brain and would just figure it out. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. this isn't that hard to understand. I mean, it's like you have the internet and television. So like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the best age of information, access to information that we have. So yeah, just Google that. Right. <laughs> but yeah, as we're trying to, we're saying that we want to be diverse, we want to be inclusive, but you can only be diverse if you have an inclusive culture to begin with. Correct. So what can companies or the water industry do so that it makes 
the space safe for people like you or people from like the queer and trans community? Sure. My advice to anyone who is transitioning or in that space or is thinking of coming about in the water industry is not everyone's going to accept you. And mentally, you have to be in a place where, and I'm glad because I had a really, back when I was transitioning, you had to have like a gender identity disorder diagnosis. So it was like considered a mental illness in 2011 still or 2009, whenever I started this. Oh, wow. I have to say my therapist really prepared me. I mean, it's, it's not going to be happy. She told me, she's like, Ari, I don't think it's fair and life isn't fair. And I'm like, yep, I'm with you. Tell me what you got to say. And she's like, well, I don't think this is right, but at the end of the day, you have to be prepared for the consequences that come out of being honest. And I don't think it's right, but it's a reality. And you have to be prepared to lose friends, family, potentially your job, other things to be who you are. And that's incredibly unfair, but you have to understand that that's a real life thing that can happen. And you should have some awareness of how safe you are in that process. And that's what I tell every trans person. I say, hey, you know, I don't know where you are in work. I don't know what your bosses are like or the people around you. But at the end of the day, these are the realities that we face as trans people. And it's not fair. And I wish I could take it away. But you have to be prepared for the consequences for it. And that's how I've handled fear my entire life is to prepare for the worst case scenario and hoping that it doesn't happen, right? Being positive. But at the end of the day, saying, oh, well, if this happens, this is how I'm going to be okay. Because I matter, right? Yeah. And if you can even do that. I know some people can't. My advice is just you work for a company, see if they have, you know, talk to an HR person that you trust, see if they have any policies about transitioning employees. Usually the ones that do do a better job at it. At least it's on the purview, right? So look into see what kind of benefits or medical assistance they have for you. Generally speaking, I want to believe this, even though I know it's not 100% true. I think the reason why I was successful transitioning at Black and Beach is that everybody liked me before. They liked who I was. The way I showed up at work proved I was a good worker. Uh, I got along with people. I worked hard. That's what matters. And I was lucky to be surrounded by people who cared about me and valued that. And it didn't matter what I was. I can't say if I was assigned male at birth going to female that that would be the same result. Because let's be honest, we live in a pretty homophobic, transphobic country. And I'd like to think it wouldn't be any different. But I don't know that. We do have some trans women where I work and they've experienced various things from my experience to a little less ideal. So who knows? It just really depends on the people you're around, right? Yeah. But I would say just know the people you're interfacing with before you do that and just make sure you're safe. And if it's not a safe place for you to do that, to me, I would just look for another place to be that's going to celebrate you or create it yourself if you feel comfortable doing that. If you feel comfortable being the first one, and creating that for yourself, which I think is amazing, then go for it. What the water industry can do, and people in general can do, is stop making assumptions about what people can do based on their gender or their race or what conceived bias you have, and actually be conscious about the biases you hold. And actively try to work on them. Some of us can't change some of our biases, but if we're aware of them, we can at least say, hey, I'm driving under this mechanism. I need someone else who's not biased in this way to give me some perspective. And I do that all the time because I'm biased based on where people are from. In this country, I've just lived so many places that I attribute norms to every place I go to. And some of them are very real. Some of them may be a little exaggerated based on my experience, (laughs) right? 
But I know that about myself. I mean, I'm not free of it, but at least I know, hey, how do I keep this in check so I don't make a bad decision or actually discriminate against someone because of it? Right. right. I don't want to do that. So I tell people, stop making assumptions about how people identify. It's fake. Your assumption's probably wrong. And you should probably just ask someone how they identify. And just stop making assumptions about what people would do. Just go in with an open mind. Look at people as individuals. It's not going to kill you. Like, get to know somebody, like, encourage people who are curious. Be curious about people. There's nothing wrong with being curious about people, but we can do it in a friendly, inclusive way without asking inappropriate questions, too. So if it's something that you don't feel comfortable answering, then don't ask somebody else. That's kind of what I, you know, I do for the trans experience. I kind of like the saying is, we say treat people like we want to be treated. I'm saying treat people the way they want to be treated. Yeah. I say, I don't want to be treated the way you do. I don't, that's not how it works for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like it when people assume that I only understand what it's like to live in a male experience because it's not true. It's not authentic and I don't embrace it and I don't operate that way. So a lot of it's just breaking down what are your biases? How do you take accountability for that? Stop making assumptions about people based on what they can and can't do based on what they are. Get to know people when you make a mistake take accountability for it. I think that's really 99% of really how the water industry can be better and talk about difficult things and understand that it's not a personal attack against you. In fact, it usually has nothing to do with you. It has to do with how you behaved, not who you are. And those are different things. And my message to people is if you truly want to be a leader and you truly want to be a good person, because I feel those two things are not negotiable, they have to go together. You care about the impact you create more than you care about your ego and your sense of being right. It's about getting it right, not being right. So once I talk in those kinds of terms, people are like, oh, well, it's not about me. It's not about personal attack against me. And I'm like, no, we're all imperfect in general. And this is just an area where you need to increase your focus and your awareness. And once you do that, which is totally doable, you'll be even better. And who doesn't want that in their life? Yeah. So that's how I've gained. Now someone's just still, you know, right. just happy. <laughs> there we are. Right, exactly. So that's my recommendation to the water industry. Just be open to different people. Like you don't have to hire the same types of people. Not everyone has to be hired from your college or from town you live in. Or if you want to use diversity in like a regional sense, like someone who wasn't born in this country can do a great job just as someone who was, right? That's not dependent. I mean, it's all about that person's brain and motivation and ability to overcome obstacles, right? Yeah. So that's kind of what I tell people. That's how the industry can be better. And then working on things to display that we actually do have diversity in our industry already. It's not like this is something new. It exists. It's just not on the forefront. So if we showed and highlighted different people showing, hey, we do have people of color that work in this industry, but we really like more of those people, right? Or we do have women working in this industry far more than we ever had in the past. We're moving the needle, but we need to do better. It's happening, but we got to work together in order to make sure if a woman wants to enter this profession, we're allowing them to as long as they're able to do the job, which is just everything anyways. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. And, you know, just this comes down to the issue of how do you hire for diversity and inclusion in in mind. Right. Like you were saying, you don't hire someone who just like looks like you or who went to the same school or who likes the same football team kind of thing. Right. You want to find somebody who will add to the team and add to achieving the mission and the goal of 
the team or the organization as a whole. Exactly. And yeah, you've really got like the hiring recruiting process, so many biases there from like the job description to the interview process to even like the onboarding process. There's just... Right. But there are places we can check ourselves for sure. Yeah, even the images you use. Mm-hmm. You see it mailed out. It's, it's a technical job. It's usually a man, usually a white one. Mm-hmm. It might be a diverse, but usually it's always a, a male. And unless they're trying to really showcase diversity and they change it around, but usually it's just a guy. Whatever they associate the position to be, it's a guy. Even if you do like a clip art search in PowerPoint, you type in like boss or you type in leader, everything that comes up is pretty much men <laughs> men or a man talking to a woman or like you know really? what i mean yeah 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 i did it the other day when i did a presentation oh my gosh I, yeah it's all masculine energy like fast cars all sorts of stuff i'm just like i'm just like wow we really haven't progressed so far powerpoint is still very male centric <laughs> i mean <laughs> fix that microsoft right <laughs> And I'm like, oh, it's not Microsoft's purview. I guess I shouldn't care. I don't know. (laughs) Which is so funny because they have like, Microsoft is considered to be like one of those leading companies when it comes to DI stuff. This is another topic of like bias in AI. It totally... Oh my gosh, I'm totally going to do that after this interview. You I'm going to totally check do out it. the clip art. You should be like, Ari, holy crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're I'm right. I'm going to find another thing to like enrage me, you know? <laughs> or empower you, empower <laughs> you. <laughs> Write a very stern letter to Microsoft and say, this is not acceptable. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll put it on my social media feed and hopefully the CEO will find it. <laughs> there you go. Be direct about I'm it. I'm a South Asian man too. I'm like, what's his name? Satija or something. I can't forget. Right. Oh, man. It's special. But it's there. And like when people ask me, I'm like, well, I'll just type it in. And even with words, I mean, in our industry, we use male-centric words like manpower, craftsman, foreman. Hey, guys, guys, guys. I mean, I literally count how many times guys is said in every single conversation I have. I can't help it. It's like, it's. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I've heard that word again. And like half of us don't really identify this way. I get it's a cultural norm. but we could do better. I've learned to stop saying it to mean everybody. I just use folks and everyone or how's it going? Or y'all. You, y'all. Yeah. That's what I'm telling you. The South is now the most <laughs> inclusive part of the country just because they address. No one will ever say that ever again on a podcast. I don't think those words right. have ever gone together in a sense. <laughs> but the way that they address everybody, y'all, is an extremely inclusive way of yeah. going about it. So I just tell people, yeah. I'm like, just Work on that. That's like one thing that you could work on. And when you make a mistake, just correct it. Because I do it once in a while, especially if I'm around men a lot. I find that my language does change when I'm mostly around men all the time. And I have to say, hey, oh yeah, sorry, I hung out with too many guys in the last month. I need to like readjust and and go back (laughs) to speaking inclusively now. And I'll be like, oh, I mean folks. I mean folks. Sorry about that. (laughs) That's what I say all the time. I'm like, I didn't mean it like that. But you know what I mean? It's totally it's instantaneous. So yeah. Yeah. I'm totally trying to remove the word guys from my vernacular. Yeah. It's really hard. And yeah, I've been going to folks with an X. Yep. So I can be more inclusive. (laughs) Yeah, I write that out too. So I understand. Yeah. And the y'all. Y'all. But I totally sometimes catch myself yeah, saying guys. Sure. And when I do, I'm like, excuse me, I mean right. yeah. y'all. <laughs> yeah, you're aware of it. And, and I'm in the same way. It's less and less. And I find it's when I've spent a lot of time like on a construction site where I have to realign. I say, see, I'm not perfect. I've been in a 
in that bubble of where I didn't have to consider anybody else. And now I have to and see how easy it is to go back into the old ways of being, right? So I'm not excluded from it. I'm exact representation of it, actually. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, but yeah, no, it's all good stuff. And I've definitely enjoyed talking to you and everything. It's great. Likewise. So we'll go into the lightning round, which will take like five minutes or so, depending on how fast you answer. Okay, lightning round. Let's do it. Pressure. I know, I'll do it. So (laughs) what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Or what have you read, heard, watched that has influenced you the most? Well, I kind of told you about Pose. I kind of feel like Pose has. Because I mean, I was already aware of drag culture and balls and stuff just because I used to do drag. But when I watched it, I was like, wow, I hope allies watch this or people outside of our community watch this or even just white gay people watch this because it's really putting to light like people who really have not been celebrated how white people have stolen gay trans black culture and made money off of it yeah totally appropriation yeah Yeah. i mean madonna that's what she did Mm -hmm. and you know whatever she made at least she made voguing like mainstream and beautiful but like Most people don't know that. I knew it, but most people don't know it. So I feel like it's a really important thing that they brought into light because most people think of Madonna as a very... Not that I'm criticizing her, that she's very inclusive and she's always been supportive of the community, but it just goes to show you that when you say you're supportive of the community, are you really supportive of all the community, right? Because she has blind spots too. So anyways, that's my answer to that question. (laughs) Yeah. And she made millions of dollars out of that. That's right. That's right. This is a thing that upsets me, just like a small note about like how we see like drag culture as like entertaining or entertainment, which right. I mean, it is a part of it, but it's also like a form of expression, whereas like an art. Yeah. yeah. And the heterosexual community is just like, it's kind of like jokey to them, like, haha. Right. It's a man dressed like a woman. Right. Isn't that funny? Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, like they're all at hand. that just like, uh... <laughs> Right. It's like you, you lost the point. Oh, I'm getting point. enraged now. <laughs> right. It's like you're, you're missing the point of this whole performance. Yeah. It's art and it's to really extremize femininity in a masculine form, right? Mm-hmm. And vice versa. It's really to masculate a normally feminine form, right? So... They don't get it. They don't have to. Like, that's the thing. It's just like another thing that's not a purview. It's just like when people have their bachelorette parties at gay bars. And I'm just like, really? Like, this is not appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I hate that. <laughs> just go with Chili's, honey. It's fine. Like, you don't belong here. I mean, if you weren't celebrating marriage when half of us couldn't even freaking do that until five yeah. years ago, that's what used to really make me mad. I used to tell them to yeah. leave. I'm like, you're being disrespectful. Just go. We don't want you here. Like, I hate to yeah. say that, but you're just not being respectful. And if you were here with your friends and being like cool and not like showing us that you think that our culture is just a joke and that you feel safe here, which is sad that you can't go into straight only spaces and feel safe. I think that's screwed up, but that's not our problem either because we don't feel safe in most of your spaces. Yeah. Some of them are a little special, but I'm with you. Yeah. It's just this problematic attitude or culture of taking what we want from a certain culture. Right. And then when it actually comes to being there during difficult times, we're like, you do you kind of thing. Good luck. You know? <laughs> it's nice yeah. knowing you. <laughs> Figure out that marriage thing. Figure <laughs> yeah. out that whole right to be employed and right. not fired because right. of your gender or sexual identity. I mean, good right. luck with that. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Anyways, I'm ruining this lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dang it. I'm breaking my own rules. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I mean, habit, I guess I would say, I don't know. I just don't give up. Like I'm very persistent. I don't know if that's a habit. I feel like that's a personality trait, but yeah, very persistent. And I'm curious. So I'm trainable, I guess would be a good description for that. <laughs> trainable. I'm trainable. Well, some people are it. They think they know everything. I'm trainable. Yeah. I know I don't know anything, basically. So I'm just like, okay, I'm here to learn. I'm here to be curious. And I think that that's allowed me to be successful in my career because it, it's made yeah. me not shut people out. Yeah, that's a good one. What's the best piece of advice you've received? That's tough. I think the best piece of advice I've ever received is no matter what happens, just always be who you are. Mm-hmm. Because being normal, quote unquote, which doesn't exist anyways, but beating out the things that make you different is what really takes the beauty out of your existence. And it would have taken it out of mine, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I have a beautiful existence. I think it enhances a lot of people's lives. It enhances mine. And I don't think I would have been able to do that if I had not decided to choose me. Yes. So, Yes, 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 yes. What is your superpower? I'm really good at eating pizza. <laughs> and drinking coffee. I'm excellent at drinking coffee. I feel like I have making coffee and drinking coffee down to a science. Awesome. I, I actually collect coffee. So when I travel, I like stuff bags in my suitcase. It's kind of like my thing. So I would say drinking coffee is a superpower. But I'm good at seeing through like disingenuous things too. And just being very direct, which I'm sure you probably have noticed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm good at that too. <laughs> that comes through very yeah, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> it's refreshing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So one last thing is how can we follow you on your journey? Sure. So I have an Instagram page. It's the Wandering Water Bear. I think I sent you maybe a link to it or maybe not. Or the Wandering Water Bear. I could send it to you. I think it's the Wandering Water Bear. Okay. So it's an Instagram page. It's like a mix of personal things and industry things because I just don't have the energy to have two separate pages. And I'm not two separate people. So what you get at work is what you get in the personal life anyways. So uncensored and unfiltered. So there's that. I also have a LinkedIn page. I'm actively trying to create my own web page. I think I told you, I, I don't know, maybe I didn't. I'm trying to create my own non for profit to provide awareness to people by doing presentations. So I'm trying to get yeah. a web page set up and trying to get content developed for that, trying to get more speaking engagements for that. So hopefully that'll be in done or at least in progress for a year from now. But my Instagram is the easiest way. LinkedIn is also... I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. So if you search for me, Ari Copeland, you should find me on there. There's not many Ari Copelands. So... <laughs> okay. Yep. That's that's a relief. <laughs> that's very... Yeah, that's true. I don't think the world's ready for another one of me. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't mean it that way. Oh, I mean it that <laughs> like, way. It'd be easier to... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be easier to find you. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> you know, like... So- no. Joe Schmo. <laughs> self-deprecating humor is like a very common yeah. New England like way of being. So you're getting a piece of <laughs> yeah. it. That's all I can tell you. Yes, I am very familiar with it, having lived there <laughs> in that part of the world for a while. <laughs> awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we end? I don't think so. I just want people to keep being awesome and just be you. Yeah. It's like our catchphrase. I like that shirt. Yeah. yeah, I love this shirt. Hashtag BU, we sold them and donated money to the Trevor Project and the NAACP this year. So we raised $12,000 nice. for $1,200. $1,200. 
Okay, that's what's up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, we did something. That's what I'm trying to tell them. I was like, hey, allies, we gave money. That's doing something. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so break out the pocketbooks. <laughs> Indeed. So Yeah, put your money where your mouth is. Exactly. But yeah, no, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.